and welcome back to Weird on the Rocks. This is a podcast that explores the weird, unusual, strange, and unexplained, all while getting our drink on. I'm your host, Katie. Today's episode is going to cover a lesser-known true crime case, and that is the story of the Tita family murders, or the Christmas cabin murders. This is a case that I watched a YouTube video on and was very intrigued by because it's a story I've never heard about, which is surprising because it's probably one of the most senseless and horrible cases out there, honestly. I think that crimes that happen around the holidays, such as the Jean Bonnet murder, are just kind of extra creepy and tragic because it's supposed to be such a joyous and fun time of year, and we don't ever really think that something bad is going to happen to us while we're, you know, just enjoying time together with our family. And I can't imagine how caught off guard you would be to have something horrible happen around Christmas time. But I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and it's probably a story that will be brand new for most of you, so that's always exciting because it's hard to do these days with so many people being into true crime. It's very hard to find things that have not been overly covered. (laughs) For this episode, I got most of my information from a documentary called Live to Tell Three Days Before Christmas, which included interviews from the victims themselves, and it's available on YouTube if you want to watch it. I also really quickly want to say happy holidays to all of my listeners. No matter what you're celebrating, I hope it's a good one. And I hope you're all being safe and smart and mindful about how you're celebrating too. Today's episode is sponsored by Two Beauties Skincare and Makeup. Do you love beauty? Do you love supporting local business? Two Beauties Skin and Makeup, located in the heart of Old Town Eureka, is your one-stop destination for all things beauty on the North Coast. They offer clinical skincare services, chemical peels, waxing, and professional makeup application from licensed and experienced professionals only. Two Beauties also carries a large selection of high-end makeup and skincare products like Jan Marini, Glow Skin Beauty, Kula, and Oma Beauty, to name a few. I actually had the pleasure of having Liz do my wedding makeup for me. And from the very beginning, she was super helpful and communicative, which if a business isn't good about replying or keeping in touch about their services, it is a huge turnoff for me. But she was great from the start. She had me come in for a trial makeup run, and prior to that, she asked me to send her example photos of what kind of look I was going for, which made me feel way more comfortable during my appointment knowing that she already knew exactly what I was looking for. She was so great about keeping in touch and making any changes I wanted. And then the day of the wedding, she showed up promptly and was incredibly professional. Even after she left, I remember my bridesmaids were just raving about how great she was. And my makeup was honestly even better than I imagined it to be. And I got so many compliments on it. And not only did the makeup last all day, but I was so exhausted that I didn't take it off before bed. And when I woke up the next morning, it still looked good, which I think really speaks for the quality of the products that were used. I just can't say enough good things about Two Beauties. Easily shop gift cards and all your beauty needs at www.twobeauties.org. That's T-W-O beauties.org. Or find them on social media at Two Beauties Eureka. Love beauty, shop local. Two Beauties in Old Town Eureka since 2016. All right, before we get into it, I want to share this week's beverage of choice. In the spirit of Christmas, tonight I'm drinking a peppermint hot chocolate, complete with mini marshmallows and whipped cream, of course. 
One of my favorite holiday drinks is hot chocolate. I know last episode, I think I had a Mexican hot chocolate. Um, I really love hot chocolate with peppermint schnapps. So I'm pretending that that's what this is. Uh, It's getting a lot colder here. And I've just been on a really big hot chocolate kick lately. Normally, um, in the afternoon, early evening, I would make myself like a mocha or something. But since I'm drinking less caffeine, I've just been opting for a good old hot chocolate. And it's definitely like very nostalgic for me too. So if you haven't had a hot chocolate recently, I encourage you to have one too. All right, well, let's get into it. Cheers and let's get weird. It's December 22nd, 1990, and the Tita family is spending time at their cabin in the mountains of Utah. The family consisted of dad, Rolf, mom, Kay, their 20-year-old daughter, Lene, 16-year-old daughter, Trisha, and 72-year-old grandma, Beth. The family had owned the beautiful cabin, which they called Tita's Tranquility, because of how peaceful the area was for years and spent their summers and holidays there together as a family. In the documentary Live to Tell, Three Days Before Christmas, Lene Tita would later say that the cabin and its surrounding river and open pastures was, quote, heaven on earth to me, end quote. And her sister Trisha fondly remembers her time spent there as a child with aunts, uncles, and cousins always around. The cabin itself was two and a half miles off of the main road, and during winter you had to park on the road and snowmobile up to the house. Trisha described it as, quote, an escape from the world for our family, end quote. The home was festive with a fire always going, baking happening in the kitchen, and presents under the tree. On December 22nd, three days before Christmas, the family went into town for the day to finish up their Christmas shopping. They arrived around noon with Lene, her mom, and her grandma arriving by snowmobile first. Lene remembers her hands being freezing, and when they pulled up to the cabin, she asked her mom if she could run inside and run her hands under some warm water before helping bring in the packages. Lene ran inside and up the stairs and saw a quick flash of something black go behind the refrigerator. She thought that it was a cousin who had arrived for Christmas early and was expecting them to jump out and try to scare her. But instead, out stepped a man Lene had never seen before. She described him as a, quote, frizzy-headed man in a gray sweatshirt with his pistol pointed at me, end quote. She assumed that this man just wanted to rob them, and if they gave him some money, he would leave them alone. Lene's mom and grandma then both came into the house, and Lene yelled out that there was a robber in the home. Soon, another man, wearing thick Coke bottle glasses, emerged from one of the bedrooms, pointing a gun at Kay and Beth. 72-year-old Beth sat down on a bar stool at the counter while her daughter Kay, Lene's mom, pleaded with the man, asking what he wanted and saying they would give him everything they had. Then, with her mom and grandma being inside the home for less than three minutes, Lene heard multiple gunshots. She saw her mother collapse and put her arms over her chest, saying, I've been shot. She then looked over at her grandma and saw the man with the glasses shoot her in the head. Lene remembers seeing blood splatter all over the walls and hearing her grandma gasping for air 
then silence. Both of the women were dead. With just witnessing both her mom and grandma being murdered right before her eyes, Lene then realized that her dad and younger sister Trisha would be coming home. She said, quote, Soon I heard snowmobiles coming in the distance and my heart sinking to my gut, knowing that was my dad and sister, end quote. Also hearing the snowmobiles approaching, the original man Lene encountered, wearing the gray sweatshirt, put his arm around her neck tightly and pointed the gun into her back. At this point, Trisha and her father, Rolf, were getting off the snowmobile and walking towards the cabin. Trisha says that a man jumped out from inside the garage wearing a full ski mask and pointing a gun at them. He then walks them into the home. Once inside the cabin, Lene remembers making eye contact with her father, who could see the tears streaming down her face and, without speaking, knew that something awful had happened. The men asked Rolf if he had any money, and he took $100 out of his wallet and threw it on the floor, and one of the men put it in his pocket. Then the man in the gray sweatshirt commanded the man in the glasses to shoot Rolf. However, the man refused. So the man in the sweatshirt, who was still restraining Lene with his arm around her neck, pointed the gun at the girl's father and pulled the trigger. The first round didn't fire, so he pulled the trigger again and the second round didn't fire. He then pulled the trigger again and shot Rolf in the face in front of his two daughters. Lene said, quote, I had no doubt in my mind that he was dead, just like my mom and my grams, end quote. She said, quote, I was terrified to think that the trauma wasn't going to stop. It just kept going, end quote. Lene and Trisha both recall having no idea what the two men wanted from them or why they were killing their family. Lene said that she had been looking around the cabin and realized that the men had been there for several hours. There were Coke cans on the counter, half-eaten food left out, and Christmas presents opened under the tree. She realized that these men knew the family was coming back at some point and had just been sitting there waiting for them. After shooting Rolf, the two men went down to the garage and came back up with gas cans, which the family used for their snowmobiles. They then proceeded to douse the entire cabin in gasoline and light a match. The girls remembered there was a sense of urgency, and the men were moving very quickly. As the cabin began to burn, the men took the girls out into the snow, still pointing the guns at them, and said they needed to get on the snowmobiles. Trisha said, quote, I had this feeling inside of me that we needed to listen and do what they said until the moment came where Lene and I could make our escape, end quote. The men ordered the girls onto the snowmobiles where they sat behind them, with each girl driving one of the men. Trisha remembers thinking of ways that she could wreck the snowmobile and get rid of the man on the back without seriously injuring herself, but knew that she could not abandon her sister. As they approached the main gate that was at their property's entrance, the girls saw a car and realized it was their uncle Randy. Randy said he saw his nieces approaching him and noticed the men on the back of the snowmobiles and thought that maybe it was their boyfriends. He got out of his car to greet them and waved his arms in the air to get their attention, but the girls drove right past him, which he thought was extremely odd. The man with Trisha asked her who that man was, and she lied and said it was just a neighbor or someone just being nice and coming to say Merry Christmas. Trisha said that after they drove past their uncle, she remembers feeling utterly alone and vulnerable, knowing that they were in the middle of nowhere with two murderers. 
Soon they came to the family car that was parked on the main road. The men loaded their guns into the trunk of the car. Then one of them opened his jacket, showing Trisha a knife. And he said, don't worry, I'm just as good with a knife as I am with a gun. Lene, Trisha, and the two men got into the car. At this point, their Uncle Randy had turned his vehicle around and came back to talk to his nieces and saw them getting into the family's car. He approached the car, once again waving his arms to get their attention. Lene said she knew that if they admitted that was their uncle, he would be killed too. So they continued to ignore him and told the men they didn't recognize him. Randy saw the car drive past him with the girls once again not acknowledging him, and he knew that something was very wrong. He began walking back to his vehicle when he saw another snowmobile approaching. He was confused as to who it was because the man wasn't wearing a coat, gloves, or a helmet in the freezing cold. He then realized the man was his brother, Rolf. Randy said that Rolf's face was so swollen and bruised that he was almost unrecognizable and that he literally had bloody icicles dripping off of his body. Rolf told Randy that he had been shot, his wife had been killed, and his daughters had been kidnapped. It turns out that Rolf had been knocked unconscious from the gunshot but eventually awoke and played dead. He remembers feeling and smelling the men pour gasoline on his legs and feet and remembers hearing the snowmobiles drive away. He somehow was able, with eyes almost entirely swollen shut, to get outside and onto a snowmobile. Randy quickly put his brother Rolf into the backseat of his car and started down the canyon following the family's car that had just left. Randy had a cell phone at the time, which was still very uncommon, but the service was almost non-existent, and he tried calling 911 dozens of times. He remembers thinking only two things save the girls, and get Rolf onto Life Flight, which is a medical helicopter that transports people to the hospital. Eventually, Randy came up on the family's car, but was unsure of what to do, knowing that the two men inside it were armed. As he was tailing the car, he was finally able to connect with emergency services. He was able to briefly explain the situation and tell the dispatcher where the vehicle was located before he lost service. Soon he saw a gas station, and he used their payphone to once again call 911 and request a helicopter for his brother, who was clinging to life in the back seat of his car. Back inside the car with the two men, Trisha says a police car drove past them, then turned around and began following them closely. The two men began to panic and drive faster, reaching close to 100 miles per hour. Then the car drove off an embankment. Trisha remembers as they were falling down the cliff that she looked up at the road above them and saw multiple cop cars as well as a group of community members, all of them with their guns in their hands pointed down towards their car. She said, quote, I just remember how amazed I was that there were so many people there so fast, end quote. The police approached the car pointing guns at Lene and Trisha, not knowing that the two men had kidnapped them. The two girls held hands and ducked down out of the line of fire. Lene said, quote, We've always had a connection even as little children, a special connection where we can feel each other. She's always been a great comfort to me. End quote. The two men were removed from the car and handcuffed. Lead investigator Joseph Offert said, quote, These guys are obviously cowards. As long as they were in total control of the situation by use of fear and force, then they continued to function. But when that control went away, that's when it stopped and they surrendered to authorities, end quote. The officers ordered the men onto their knees with their hands behind their heads, and Lene started yelling at the police to kill them because they had just killed her family. Trisha said, quote, 
I remember a feeling of not necessarily being safe, but we survived. We're no longer in the custody of those two evil men, end quote. Soon after the medical helicopter arrived and transported Rolf to the nearest hospital, Trisha said, quote, I can't imagine what had to have been going on in dad's head after being shot and he's laying there playing dead and trying to breathe as shallow as possible. I later learned that dad had been doused in gasoline and he caught on fire himself and he had to run into the shower and tear off his snowsuit while on fire. Having the strength to get on the snowmobile and race down that mountain to save my sister and I. How much blood he'd lost, how he couldn't see, getting down the mountain in freezing temperatures. My whole life, my dad was my hero. And that just put an exclamation point on it. End quote. Investigator Offert said that in a case like this, the most important thing is getting help to those who need it, like Rolf. Then, it's to preserve evidence. After booking the two men in jail, investigators made their way up to the Tita family cabin. Patrol Deputy Brad Wild said, quote, Hundreds of crime scenes later, it still rates right up there. You know, it's still very vivid to me. Probably when I got maybe 10 feet from the door, I picked up the faint smell of maybe burnt hair or burnt clothing. It smelled like something was burning. As I entered the garage, I saw a maybe 12 to 18 inch puddle of blood that was fresh. As I started up the stairwell, I could see holes in the walls. Bullet holes coming from one wall across the stairwell into the other wall. There was blood smeared on the wall. It looked like a bloody hand had wiped down the wall. It almost looked like a mini war zone. There were two bodies. I checked for pulses, but I knew in my mind they were deceased. I walked into the smoke before I finally realized that the top floor of the cabin was still on fire. Then our mindset was protecting the victim's property because we thought the cabin was going to burn down. On top of the coffee table, there was a video camera and some tapes, end quote. Lead investigator Joseph Offert said, quote, When I watched the videotape that had been taken from the crime scene, I expected to see pictures of family talking, playing games, doing what family folks do. But as it turns out, there were the two suspects, end quote. The home video showed the two men who had attacked the family sitting on their couch and opening their Christmas presents. Lene said, quote, I remember thinking of the pure malice and hate that these men must have. What heartless jerks. Why would they do this to our family? End quote. The two men were Vaughn Taylor, age 25, and Edward Deli, age 21. Taylor had recently been paroled after serving time for aggravated burglary, and Deli had recently been paroled after serving a five-year sentence for arson. They had met in a halfway house which they had left without permission on December 14th. They chose the desolate Utah mountain area as the scene of their crime because one of them had family in the area and they knew it well. Leading up to this violent crime, they had burglarized several other cabins in the area that they knew were vacant then decided to attack the Tita family after seeing that they were home. Their goal was to get enough money and a car so they could flee the country. Investigator Offert said, quote, This may seem like a slam-dunk case for some people, but from an investigator's point of view, it was very complicated and very complex. Sure, it's not a whodunit, there's no question who committed the crimes, but being able to determine what criminal act each suspect committed, that was a challenge, end quote. Both men ended up being charged with the two murders, two counts of aggravated kidnapping, arson, and for the high-speed chase. Five months after the sentencing, Vaughn Taylor pleaded guilty to two counts of capital murder, and the state dropped all the other charges against him in exchange for that plea. 
Linnea said, quote, I believe Taylor pled guilty to this crime because there was so much cold evidence against him that that was all he could plea. He was an evil man. He had no remorse, no regard for life whatsoever. You could see it in his eyes. From the moment we saw him to the last time we saw him in court, he just had this air about him of anger and zero remorse, end quote. Taylor decided to go before a jury instead of a judge, and they sentenced him to death for the murders of Kay and Beth. A few weeks later, Edward Deli went to trial. At this trial, both Linnae and Trisha had to testify and walk the court through every step of the crimes, including having to hold the actual guns used to kill their family. Joseph Offert said, quote, Linnae and Trish Tita were excellent witnesses. They were very sure about the things they had seen and very articulate. End quote. Rolf Tita also was able to testify in court after a long recovery from his facial gunshot wound. As he walked into the courtroom, Edward Deli was visibly surprised because at this point, he thought that Rolf had also died. About Deli's behavior in the courtroom, Trisha said, quote, The look on his face was just priceless. My dad survived. We had won. End quote. But unlike Taylor's conviction of first-degree murder and a death penalty sentence, Deli was found guilty of second-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison. It turns out that one jury member couldn't agree on convicting him of first-degree murder. The Tita family was shocked by this and believed that the justice system had failed their family. About the crime itself and the legal proceedings that followed, Randy, the uncle who had found the girls, said, quote, This was such a horrific experience for everybody that I think we all didn't know what to say or buried it inside to where we didn't talk about it a lot, end quote. Trisha says that she never properly dealt with the trauma she had experienced and losing her mother and grandmother, and that she suffered from unexplainable anger and breakdowns for years following. Lene says that the experience made her fearful of others and afraid to let her guard down around other people or to make real connections. In 2001, 11 years after the murders, Lene received a letter from Edward Deli. It took her nine years to respond, and the two conversed via mail several times. Deli explained that he was now a man and far different from the young boy who committed those crimes, and that he was truly sorry for what he did. Lene said that she has not forgotten what Deli did to her family, but that she has been able to forgive him, and therefore has allowed herself to move on from the pain and trauma. Several years after the crimes, the Tita family returned to the scene of the crime and rebuilt their family cabin. Lene and Trisha, who are now in their late 40s, are able to bring their husbands and kids to the cabin to share the same happy childhood they once had there. Trisha said, quote, They weren't able to take away the things we love and enjoy in life. They took our mom and they took our grams, but that's where it ends, end quote. In 2008, Rolf Tita peacefully passed away from cancer with Lene and Trisha by his side. And while both women say they feel his presence around them all the time, they especially feel him when they're at the cabin. About the experience that changed Trisha's life forever at the young age of 16, she said, quote, I wouldn't say the events of 1990 defined me, but they made me who I am today, end quote. In March of 2020, federal judge Tina Campbell overturned the death sentence that was given to Vaughn Taylor. She ruled that Taylor did not get an adequate defense from his public defender. 
A local broadcast from KPCW said, quote, Over the years, Taylor has pursued a number of unsuccessful appeals to state courts, including three efforts before the Utah Supreme Court. His lawyers argued the evidence showed that the two victims were killed by shots from a 44 Magnum, which Delhi carried, not the 38 Special that Taylor carried. Judge Campbell said that an evidentiary hearing in her court in 2018 met the burden of showing that a juror could determine there was a reasonable doubt that Taylor was responsible for the killings, end quote. Judge Campbell believes that Taylor's attorney, Elliot Levine, gave him unsound advice that led him to making a guilty plea. KPCW said, quote, The judge said that Levine did not conduct an investigation into the state's evidence did not consult with any experts, and he didn't visit the scene of the crime. His girlfriend worked for him as a paralegal on the case and developed little evidence herself. And Levine indicated to his client that he thought the state's case was unassailable. End quote. It is believed at this time that the Utah Attorney General's office will appeal the ruling to Denver's 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. Okay, so that's going to be it for today's episode. I don't know if it's because I'm pregnant or what, but this story really got to me and I cried more times than I would like to admit uh, while watching the documentary. I just can't imagine how absolutely horrifying it would be to see your mom and grandma be murdered right in front of you and just the long lasting effects that something like that would have on a person. These girls were so young, 16 and 20 And, you know, really just starting their lives as young adults only to have something like this just change everything in the blink of an eye. And I think of their poor father who also, you know, lost his wife. It's also so awful to think about because Christmas time is such a special and joyous time of year. And this family will always have that holiday overshadowed with this memory. Last year, my husband and I were lucky enough to spend two separate weekends in cabins with both sides of our families. And I just kept coming back to that time as a reference for this episode. It was such a happy and fun time and we were just, you know, drinking wine and playing games and just hanging out and I cannot imagine something so terrifying happening to us during such a happy time. I also cannot imagine the amount of strength that the dad, Rolf, had to show in order to get up, get on a snowmobile and go after his daughters after being shot in the face and being literally set on fire. Stories where a parent shows strength like this to protect their children always just gets me right in the feels because it's something I think that just comes naturally to parents and you would put your life in danger to save your child no matter what the circumstance. And that is just so sad, but it's also really beautiful and kind of touching at the same time. I also really enjoyed covering this story because the two girls who survived were able to go on and live happy and very fulfilled lives despite the horrible event that they had to endure. Again, it shows a lot of strength that at such young ages, they were able to get up in court and testify against the men who murdered their families and that to this day, they don't let this one event define them or their lives. As always, though, I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode and whether or not you've ever heard of this case and just what you think about the whole story. I'm definitely surprised that I've never heard about it and that it's not more widely covered because it's definitely a memorable story full of, you know, twists and turns. As always, I want to thank all of you for taking the time out of your busy lives to listen and support the show. I appreciate every single one of you and I hope you all have a happy and safe holiday. 
And until next time, cheers and stay weird. That was a Titan Cast episode.